Well, we, uh, we are familiar by now with how Job uh, begins uh, when our first conversation with uh, the Lord and the Satan comes to its conclusion. God says to him, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord one day. When his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And it goes on in rapid fashion. I alone have escaped to tell you. I alone have escaped to tell you. Until by the end his own children are gone, your sons, <coughs> excuse me, and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. And we remember in that prose introduction how um, Job responds. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. And the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the, the narrator inserts a line in all this. Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. So that closes our first scene in the book. And we move then right into the second one. We have that same encounter between God and the Satan. It ends this way. The Lord said to the Satan, very well, he's in your power. Only spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. So now Job's own health has been taken away. His wife says, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. He said, you speak like one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? And again, we get that notation. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so our second scene comes to its conclusion. And then we have the arrival of Job's three friends. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite. Now I should pause here. Many of you know my friend and colleague, Dr. James Strange. Yes, Dr. Strange, y'all know him. Delightful, delightful guy. Love James together. You know, it is said that there are basically only seven forms of humor. And that all jokes are just variations of those seven things. Dr. Strange only knows three of those. And so he refers to one of Job's friends as the shortest man in the Bible. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the shoe height. <laughs> I apologize. I really do. I, you know, I got a lot of these. We know that the disciples, for example, drove a, a, a car from Japan. It says that they all joined in one accord, uh, for example. And uh, my... My wife, God bless her, I love her. She is the, the daughter of missionary parents and absolutely scandalized her parents and some of their friends when uh, she came out as a five-year-old 
and said that she had a joke to tell them about who was the toughest man in the Bible. And they said, well, I don't know, Michelle, who? And she said, Abraham, because it says he tied his... Now, the word is, well, it's donkey, but it's a little different in the King James. Tied his donkey to a tree and then took a three-day journey. And she said this in front of her missionary parents, missionary friends. <laughs> it was a glorious moment, apparently. They have yet to forget it uh, or let her live it down. But I digress. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamatite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, at this point, I mean, you have to have nothing but a commendation for the friends. I mean, these are, uh, are wonderful comforters. They come and they, they don't know what to say. They see the great suffering of their friend there. And so they come, they mourn with him, and they're just there being there with him. Uh, I think, uh, you know, one of the lessons that I had to be taught when I was a, a very young minister, um, I, I had a... Uh, a good mentor, uh, you know, Mark Howard over at the church that uh, I attended at that time, he was wonderful at doing uh, hospital visits, which I am not. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert, and so, you know, all the kind of people thingy, I, and I don't know what to say, and so I just, I, I, I stumble, and I sputter, and I, I mutter, and I, 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 I got nothing, and uh, he was just wonderful at it, and one of the things that he said was, you don't always have to say anything, which was great advice for someone like me, uh, that rather than getting too far out over my skis with something stupid that might have come out of my mouth, just just being there was the whole point, and that was great advice. That's what the, the friends are doing here. Well, the, the story is about to be thrown for a loop. Uh, we, we, we seem like everything's going fine, but Job is going to, he's going to throw that wrench into the gears there. The Satan had argued that Job would curse God if Job's blessings were taken away. And, and so Job, well, he's going to curse. He just doesn't curse God. What he curses is the day of his birth and the night of his conception. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man-child is conceived. That night, let darkness seize it. That night, let it be barren. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Let it not see the eyelids of the dawn. And why? Because it did not close the doors of my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. So Job curses. He just curses the day of his birth and the night of his conception. He doesn't curse God. And then, to, to throw things for even a, a, a greater loop, he begins to do exactly what one does in the Bible when one encounters this kind of situation. He laments. Why did I not die from the womb, come forth from the belly, and perish? So now Job, he, he hasn't cursed God what he's done is curse the day of his birth, the night of his conception, and what he's done to God is he has lamented. 
the friends are not going to like either one. As long as Job was sitting there silently, they were great. They were willing to sit in silence as well. But as soon as Job starts talking, they're going to have a problem. They are not going to like it. And so we're going to get three rounds of back and forth. And so what will happen is uh, Eliphaz will say something, and then Job will respond, and then Bildad will say something, and Job will respond, and Zophar will say something, and Job will respond. And this is going to happen three times. Now, each of those three rounds is going to be a little bit different. We'll see that it will kind of peter off at the very end there. Um, eventually, uh, Eliphaz says something short, Bildad something shorter, which kind of fits with the whole shoe height thing. Um, and then Zophar, nothing at all. Uh, so Zophar's part will be left out there at the end. To, to kind of catch what they're saying, though, we have to tap into uh, another aspect of the Bible's theology, it's a, it's a phrase that I've used with you before when we went through Psalms. Uh, it's, it is so long that I actually, if I type in DTRP on my computer, it turns it into the Deuteronomistic Theology of Reward and Punishment. That's a 25-cent word right there or phrase. Um, this is the kind that, you know, if you're going to get a tattoo, um, you know, that's the, it kind of swirls around or something. Um, the Deuteronomistic Theology of Reward and Punishment. So um, the, uh, the, the book of Deuteronomy has uh, a sort of law code in the middle, and then it has an introduction at the beginning and a set of blessings and cursings at the end. And it, it probably was written in the form of an ancient Near Eastern treaty. Uh, if, you, uh, if you take a look at some of the Assyrian treaties, especially for the, the Assyrian king whose name was Esarhaddon, this was the kind of treaty that he would impose upon the, the kings that he conquered. He would say, look, I've done this, and so here are the terms of our treaty, and then here are the blessings and cursings. Of course, with Assyria, it was all cursings. Um, but this is the, these are the consequences that will accrue if you obey or if you disobey. And so they use that kind of literary form for constructing the book of Deuteronomy, and, and it ends with chapter 28, uh, that set of blessings and cursings. If you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments that I'm commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. I, I love that phrase where it says overtake you. This is where it, it's like you have those memories of like Thanksgiving and your grandmother's chasing you around with like one more piece of pie. And at this point, you're done. I mean, you've already done the whole loosen the belt thing and the, you know, you're leaning back in the chair. You couldn't possibly eat anything else. And she said, oh, you're all skin and bones. And you know, and she's just forcing this on you. And you don't want to say no, but your body does want to say no. Uh, it, the, these blessings, they're going to chase you down. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of your livestock, the increase of your cattle, the issue of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket, your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. At a certain point, you get the feeling like he's trying to fill up space in here. He keeps going, the Lord will command the blessing upon your barns and all that you undertake. He'll bless you in the land. You'll lend to many nations, but not borrow. He'll, <laughs> he'll make you the head 
and not the tail. You'll only be at the top and not at the bottom. You see, at this point, it's like you got that 500-word essay, and you're at 490. And you're just, you know, trying to keep going. All right, I'm going to get there eventually. Um, so these are the blessings that are there. So if you obey, you get blessed. Blessings come to obedience. And then in verse 15, we get the other side. But if you will not obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments and decrees, which I'm commanding you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And it undoes every one of the blessings. Cursed shall you be in the city and the field, your basket, your kneading bowl, the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the increase of your cattle, the issue of your flock. It goes on for another 40 verses until by the end you will borrow, not lend. You'll be the tail, not the head. You'll be on the bottom, not the top. And it adds all of these other curses aside. It's, it's a very simple kind of theology if you obey, you get blessed. If you disobey, you get cursed. Now, truth be told, this is all of our theology. Everyone believes this to the very core of our souls, that if we do what's right, we ought to get good out of it. If we do something bad, we should get something bad out of it. It is a, it is a sign of the divine stamp of God's image upon our hearts. It's our conscience. We just we have this inner sense of justice that says this is the way that things ought to work. Now we, we struggle because things don't always feel like they work that way, but it is the way that we feel like they should work, and we've known this from the time that we were infants. We have a certain sense of justice where we look, and we have this keen sense when someone has gotten more than we have gotten. We had a moment... My, my children, they gave me hardly an ounce of trouble. They, they were good kids, or far better as kids than I was as a kid. Um, and, but we, we did have a moment where uh, my, my son Samuel just had a come apart, a public come apart. We just didn't really do that, um, have public come aparts, but he did this particular day. My, my wife, Michelle, she had fallen uh, at home, and she had broken bones in both of her feet, so she had two of those kind of moon boots uh, that she was wearing, but we had, we, uh, were, she was at the point where she could get out, and so we went apple picking up in Boston, and uh, she was holding uh, Elijah, who was probably about two, maybe three, and, and Samuel wanted to be held by her. And we, we said, no, you know, she's, she's holding Elijah. And the boy just flipped out. And he, cre I mean, he was screaming. It was one of those things like if they had, you know, if, if people could have videoed it on their phones back in the day. Of course, you know, back then you had to take out like the bag phone, the sound power or something and, you know, do it. So it didn't really work. But, but we would have been on Instagram. Uh, you know, there's a viral video of this kid melting down there. And... It wasn't my greatest moment. Um, I, I took him by the hand. I'm sure that he touched the ground at least a couple of times uh, as I walked across the parking lot dragging him in tow. Uh, we put them in the car, and the boy kept yelling. And I, we just didn't want, that was not my parenting style. Um, it was, you know, teamwork was everybody doing what I say uh, kind of thing. And so the boy's back, and he's just, you know, yelling and screaming and kicking my seat and stuff like this. And, He's still alive. He's still alive. The age of miracles hasn't ceased. Um, but, uh, and, and so, well, well, my keen sense of justice kicked in at this moment, and we went to McDonald's, and we went through the drive-thru, and Elijah 
got a Happy Meal. And Samuel got nothing. And Elijah, in a great moment, which I would have punished him for under any other circumstances, was back there in the back taking a fry from his Happy Meal and going <laughs> like this to his brother, which would have received punishment in other circumstances, but I'm up there going, Justice, you know, this is it. And Samuel was scandalized, as you might imagine. He looked over at this, like, this, this, this is the most outrageous breach of, of justice in the history of justice. And, and so we took him home and we put him in this little, you know, like a, a little kid seating area. It wasn't quite a high chair at that point. And Michelle gave him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And the look of just dejected horror on his face as Elijah ate a Happy Meal and played with that toy. No Happy Meal toy has ever been played with as much as that toy. While, while Samuel just stared in disbelief at this. It is, I mean, from the very beginning, we have this sense of justice. When somebody gets something we don't have, we feel that keenly that, well, oh, that's just not right. And, of course, that sense of justice can be warped, as that particular story demonstrates, but we certainly have it ground into who we are. This is the theology that informs something like Psalm 1, when it says, oh, the happiness is of the person who follows God's word, and, and meditates on his word day and night, says no to the bad things, says yes to the good things. Well, what are they like? They're like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. In everything that they do, they prosper. Well, that's the righteous, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. So if you follow God's word, you're like a tree. If you're wicked, you're like chaff. It's there. It's the logic of Proverbs. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. If you're wise, then you create blessing. If you're foolish, then you create cursing. It's, it's a very simple kind of theology. And the three friends are the mouthpieces of this theology in the book. They are the ones that their message could basically just be, well, I've got a copy of Deuteronomy with me. Let me explain what Deuteronomy says to you. You can hear it uh, in the words that they say to Job. The, uh, that it's, it's very interesting, at least for the first two rounds of speaking. They always talk about talking, and then they talk. Um, and so it's, it's that great scene from uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, when he's like, talk, because he keeps talking about talking instead of actually talking. Um, this is what Eliphaz says in Job chapter 4. Eliphaz the Tamanite answered, if one ventures a word with you, will you be offended, but who can keep from speaking? See, there's the talking about talking. You've instructed many. You have strengthened the weak knees. Your words have supported those who were stumbling. You made firm the feeble knees. So in other words, Job, you've, you've been a good counselor in the past, but now it has come to you and you're impatient. It touches you and you're dismayed. In other words, Job, you talked a good game when it was somebody else that was suffering. You were a good comforter, but now you're the one who's suffering and so what is his advice? Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Think now, who that was innocent ever perished? 
Where were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Uh, Job, if you're getting a harvest of trouble, it's because you planted it. This is my experience. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. He goes on, and a little later, later he says, Can mortals be righteous before God? Come on, Job. You're talking this good game about being righteous. Can mortals be righteous before God? Can human beings be pure before their maker? See, Eliphaz has not read the introduction to the book. The whole upright, blameless, fears God and turns away from evil is lost on him. And so he says, Job, you're, you're, you're kidding yourself. Well, the innocent, they just don't get cut off. Maybe you, you should look at Deuteronomy. It says that, Job. Well, he's not going to be the only one. Job will respond. He's not going to have any of what Eliphaz says. And so Bildad will pipe up. It says in chapter 8, then Bildad the Shuhite answers. So you're going to laugh every time you hear Shuhite from now on. I don't give it more than just a moderate, you know, grin, I think is all that really that one deserves. Um, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? See, talking about talking. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right if your children sent against him? He delivered them into the power of their transgression. Job, I mean, okay, maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was your kids who did this. They got what they deserved. See, that is the, that's the sum total of the Deuteronomistic theology of reward and punishment. They got what they deserved. They, they had it coming is the short form. If you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful place. In other words, Job, you have slipped into the disobey category, and that's why you're getting cursed. If you'll just get back in the obey category, well, then you'll get blessed all over again. Though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Inquire now of bygone generations and consider what their ancestors have found. For we are but of yesterday, and we know nothing. For our days on earth are but a shadow. Won't they teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Job, listen to what previous generations have said. Human beings aren't righteous. You're not righteous. You had it coming. Job will respond again because he's not going to buy a single bit of what Bildad says. And so, so far. Steps in, Zophar the Naamatite answered, and here it goes, talk about talking. Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and should one full of talk be vindicated, should your babble put others to silence, and when you mock shall no one shame you, you say, oh, my conduct is pure, and I am clean in God's sight. Oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for wisdom is many-sided. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Job, you're getting off easy. Not only are you being cursed because you're in the disobey category, but your disobedience is so bad that you're not being cursed as much as you deserve. Again, one would like to appeal back to the upright, blameless, fierce God and turns away from evil because, see, this is, the, this is the subtle pull of our theology when we read Job. 
is that we want to put Job in the disobey category. When Job says, my conscience is pure, I have not done this, when Job says, I'm blameless, there's part of us, even if you're a fan of Job, that just goes, blameless, Job? I mean, that's, come on, I mean, like, blame? I mean, I mean, we're, nobody's really blameless. I mean, come on, Job. And we subtly try to, it's the reason why the introduction has to say three times, upright, blameless, fears God turns away from evil, because what we want to do to make the story work is to put Job in the disobey category, and that way he can be cursed and say, well, you know, maybe he was cursed too much and there was just a test and so forth. Job's in the obey category, and what's so interesting is that he just won't budge from his conviction that that's where he is. My students, God bless them, they have the same problem that we do, is that I, we have this uh, assignment that we have to, uh, to you know, inflict upon, I mean, uh, give our students the opportunity to do in this particular class. It's this uniform assignment. I think basically it's there just so that we can have a little bit of Jobin suffering as the ones who have to grade this, but that's okay. Um, I really, I embrace my, uh, my overlords who've uh, told me that I need to do this. Um, the, I'm sorry, it's probably recorded. It's, it's been a great run, you know. Uh, you know. Um, the, uh, the, the, the challenge uh, of this is, is that they just, they just can't buy that Job is blameless. And so almost every paper eventually slips into Job had it coming. Um, the friends are the voices that sound so good. In fact, truth be told, if the words of the friends were in a different context, we would just eat them right up. They sound so good. You actually have to be careful when you hear someone quote from the book of Job because sometimes it will just be this, this sweet sound that says, I had that sounds, that's good. Those are good verses. And you go back and look and you go, wait a minute, those are the words of the friends. We're not supposed to be on their team. We're supposed to be on team Job here at but it's very hard to resist because the friends, they, they, what they say makes a lot of sense. When round two starts, the focus is going to shift a little bit. And the, the, at least the, the tenor of what they say is going to shift some. In the first round, there's uh, very much this kind of Deuteronomistic theology where it's some talking about the blessing and the cursing, and then, you know, it kind of balances. So the, the, the good people, they get blessed. The bad people, they get cursed. When you move to the second round, the whole good people get blessed part gets stripped away. They're starting to lose their patience with Job, you can tell. And so the all right, we've had enough about the whole obey and get blessed part. Let's just focus on the part we really need to, which is wicked people get cursed. And, and by implication, Job, I'm talking about you uh, when I say that. This is Eliphaz again, chapter 15. Should the wise answer with windy knowledge and fill themselves with the east wind? Should they argue in unprofitable talk or in words which can do no good? They start talking about talking again. You are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. Your iniquity is what teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. I'll show you. Listen to me. 
What I have seen I will declare, what sages have told and their ancestors have not hidden, to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. The wicked writhe in pain all their days. Well, who in front of this friend is writhing in pain? <laughs> Job. It's the wicked who writhe in pain all their days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Terrifying sounds are in their ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon them. They despair of returning from darkness. They are destined from the sword, for the sword. They wander abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? They know that a day of darkness is ready at hand. Distress and anguish terrify them. They prevail against them like a king prepared for battle, because they stretched out their hands against God and bid defiance to the Almighty running stubbornly against him with a thick, bossed shield. Job, you, you, you hear an echo of what I'm talking about? You are the one who's being defiant against God. You are the one who's writhing in pain. It's because you're among the wicked, Job. Job, of course, will not agree to this, and so Bildad will step up. Bildad, the Shuhite, answered, How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we'll speak, talking about talking. You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken because of you or the rock be removed out of its place? In other words, remember Job's curse in chapter 3? It was basically that he, he stands on the edge of the world and pronounces a curse upon everything. He would, he would tear down the foundations of creation if it lay within his power. And... and, and <laughs> Bill Dodd is saying, Job, do you, you want to destroy the whole world just on account of your little petty suffering that's here? Surely the light of the wicked is put out. The flame of their fire doesn't shine. The light is dark in their tent. The lamp above them is put out. Their strong steps are shortened. Their own schemes throw them down. They're thrust into a net by their own feet. And they walk into a pitfall. A trap seizes them. By the heel, a snare lays hold of them. Terrors frighten them on every side and chase them at their heels. Their strength is consumed. And he goes on as he talks about this, what he's saying. This is what happens to wicked people, Job. Their memory perishes from the earth. They have no name in the street. They're thrust from light into darkness and driven out into the world. He says in verse 21, Surely such are the dwellings of the ungodly. Such is the place of those who do not know. God, Job. Each time that something is said about the wicked, when Job is sitting in front of them, they're saying, Job, <laughs> we are talking about you. All of these distresses and troubles that have come to you, Job, they've come to you because you deserved them. You are among the wicked. Finally, Zophar is going to say, pay attention my thoughts urge me to answer because of the agitation within me. I hear censure that insults me. It offends my ears just to hear you talking, Job. A spirit beyond my understanding answers me. Do you not know this from old, ever since mortals were placed on the earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short? The joy of the godless is but for a moment. Job, you keep talking, but you're not going to be able to do this very long. It goes on, and, and it's interesting because he, they start enumerating sins that Job has committed. 
And, and so the, the sins that they enumerate, they're just making stuff up at a certain point. It's fine to, in a general sense, well, uh, this is what happens to wicked people, and, and Job, you're wicked. So Job says, well, then you tell me what I've done. And they just start making stuff up about what he's done. He, he says things like, um, you've crushed and abandoned the poor, seized a house that they didn't build, utter darkness is laid up for your treasures, a, fan, uh, a fire fanned by no one will devour you. What is left in your tent will be consumed. Your iniquity is going to be revealed by heaven. Your house is going to be taken away. Job, this is what's going to happen to you. They, they just sort of go through all of the sins against poor people and such that Job has done. Job hasn't done any of this. This is unrecognizable to the Job that we know. Well, we finally move over to round three, and, and the, the discussion goes on and on. Eliphaz has a line which I think essentially sums up what the friends are arguing. Chapter 22, verse 21, agree with God and be at peace. Just shut up, Job. <laughs> just say, you're right, and just be at peace. It's the, the, the problem is, of course, that it's, and boy, I just, I, obviously we all hope that we would never have to encounter one of these situations. But you really do wonder what it must have been like if you were back in the days of, say, Elizabethan England, and you had a set of convictions, but the people in power didn't share your convictions, and you're put in the dilemma of either deny your convictions or be tortured until you do. I mean, you've all seen Braveheart, right? Just confess, and you'll have mercy. But how do you confess to something that you don't believe? What do you, I mean, it's a terrible dilemma to be placed into where you, you either have to violate your conscience or endure more pain. I don't know how, I mean, well, I, I know how everybody ultimately goes through that one. Ultimately, we almost all, you know, confess because there's only so much uh, uh, torture that we can take. This line, agree with God and be at peace, is basically just, Job, deny what you believe. Admit what you think is false so that your pain will stop. What a terrible bind to be in. This is the dilemma that the friends are raising for Job. The friends are saying, Job, it's just not possible for this theology to be wrong. Wicked people are the ones that are the, 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 the category of people that get cursed. It's not righteous people who get cursed. It's wicked people. Good people get blessed. It's bad people that get cursed. And Job, there just aren't any exceptions to this rule. It's, it's one of those, you know, rule number one. Good people get blessed, bad people get cursed. If in doubt, see rule number one. This is the only theology that there is, Job. It's a theology that says everything that is, is right. Now, uh, Ballantyne, in his wonderful book that I have recommended to you, uh, he, he uses the illustration of the Lisbon earthquake 
to wrestle through this particular issue. It was All Saints Day, ironically, uh, 1755, when a terrible earthquake uh, hit the town of Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, at the time, Lisbon was actually the fourth largest city in Europe, uh, which is uh, amazing if you think about it. Poor Portugal struggles terribly with poverty now um, and has lost a lot of its population. 275,000 inhabitants of which 30,000 were killed and 100,000 injured. That's half the town uh, that were either killed or injured. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the work by Voltaire, uh, Candide, is all about the Lisbon earthquake. Uh, what uh, Voltaire is wrestling with there is, um, you know, is, is this just? How can it be just? It's a, well, what he's wrestling with is an idea that's called theodicy. And theodicy is where you're trying to make sense of the justice of God and the seeming injustice of the world. It's a defense of God's justice against what the, you know, the, the, the world that we see around us sometimes appears to be evil. I, I, was, uh, I saw this little video clip from, uh, oh, what's his name, the, the, the physicist who's everywhere, um, um, It'll come to me. Um, but uh, it, it, someone asked him, do you believe in God? And his response was one that you have heard before, is that, you know, uh, if God is supposed to be all-powerful and all-good, and you can't be, you know, both of those at the same time, given the world that uh, we live in. You know, it may be that he's not all-powerful, and that's why we have evil, or maybe he's not all-good, and that's why we have evil. But you can't be all-powerful, all-good, and have the world that we have now. Well, a theodicy is meant to challenge that and to uh, explain how this can be, uh, the, uh, the poet Alexander Pope, who, now I love literature. I am a fan of English lit, and yet I remember struggling with Alexander Pope even back in high school. Did not like reading him. Had no idea that he had written these lines at the time, but uh, I can see now why I didn't like him. All nature is but art unknown to thee. In other words, if, if you see something in the world that doesn't look like it, it's working properly, you've just misunderstood. There's an artistry behind it that you just haven't perceived. All chance is actually, well, he didn't say is actually, that's my paraphrasing him. All chance direction, which thou canst not see. All discord, harmony, not understood. All partial evil, universal good and spite of pride in erring reasons spite one truth is clear whatever is is right that's his line his line is everything that is is right if you don't think so it's just because you you don't understand What's truly going on? You've heard this a thousand different ways. Whether it's, you know, someone who, uh, you know, they, they, it's this, uh, this metaphor of creation is like a tapestry that we only get to see from the backside. And so we, we see the, the threads hanging off here and the knots in that place and this looks out of place and so forth. And it's just because we can't see the other side of the tapestry, which if we were able to see, we would see its great artistry. Alexander Pope would have liked the friends. 
Job, what, whatever is his right, you just don't understand. Now, the challenge, and, and I, I might go into a, a less elevated uh, artwork than Alexander Pope, is we might think of the movie Babe. A magnificent movie. Love the movie, Babe. Uh, those of you who haven't seen it, you owe it to yourself to see it. It is so fantastically done. There's a, a, a wonderful uh, line that the dairy cow has. The way things are is the way things are. And we should all just accept that. Well, you know, that's great if you're the dairy cow. What do you do if you're the duck? See, dairy cows are there to be maintained and fed so that they'll produce more milk. But ducks are there to be eaten. And so the poor duck is trying to find a way out of this dilemma. See, he needs to make himself useful. He's got a great line. He says, you know, they don't kill the rooster because the rooster makes it with the hens. I tried making it with the hens. It was a disaster. <laughs> it's a cute line. <laughs> and so what does he do? Well, he, he tries to take over the job of being the, the rooster as the alarm clock. And so he goes up to the top of the roof and is trying to do the, the, the rooster's crowing, but that doesn't work because he's a duck. And, and so, see, see, the duck's in real trouble. And, and, and you know who it is? The, the voice of the friends is the cat. <laughs> see, it's the cat who says, well, you know, everyone has a purpose. You know, I'm here to be beautiful and to please the mistress. <laughs> you know, the dogs are here to help the master and so forth. And, and pigs, well, pigs are for eating. And uh, no, no, not the boss. The boss wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, that's, that's, see, it all sounds great if you're the dairy cow or the cat. It doesn't sound so great to say whatever is, is right if you're the duck or the pig. And this is what Job is struggling with. This is the dilemma of Job. This is the dilemma, truthfully, of life. In some sense, Pope has to be right. We just have to be at a far enough remove for that to be the case. In some sense... It has to be that, that Leibniz, who's the one who came up with this idea of theodicy, we didn't come up with it, he just kind of categorized it. Job's the one who's talking about theodicy. And Pope have to be right that in an ultimate long enough sense, as an act of faith, we have to believe that God's doing the right thing. The challenge that we have is what do we do in the here and now? That's our struggle. Our struggle is that even if we believe that in a long enough timeline God will make things right, what are we supposed to do right now when it comes to Job? Now, you can tell that the friends have not made any purchase with Job, and there was somebody who was reading the book, and they agreed that they had not made any purchase with Job, and they tried to fix it. And the way that they tried to fix it was they put in a, a fourth friend, and that fourth uh, friend, his name is Elihu. And Elihu, I have said about the friends, they always talk about talking and then they, they, they talk. Not Elihu. 
Elihu just talks about talking and then talks more about talking. He gets more words than any other character in the book except for Job. And <laughs> I kind of like this line. Uh, the, the way that Ballantines describes him is he's like graffiti on a beloved memorial. Um, you, you look at him and you're just like, why is he here? And will he not just be quiet? It's fascinating. Job never says a word back to Elihu. God completely ignores Elihu in here. And the reason is because Elihu is a secondary addition. Elihu is put in here to try to say something, but he just can never quite get it out. And so he goes on for more words even than God in the book and, and tries to convince Job to listen to him. Listen to what I say. Now listen up here. Now I'm telling you, you should really hear me out on this. And I think you ought to hear what I'm about to... But it just, in the process, as, as one of my homiletics professors once said to someone who was giving their sermon, while you're up there talking, how about saying something? <laughs> that, that's, that's Elihu. But, but see, Elihu is representative of our dilemma. He wants to side with the friends but has nothing more to add. And so all he does is go on for four chapters saying, listen to the friends, basically. Calvin was irresistibly attracted to Elihu. Loved him. Calvin did 159 sermons on Job. That's a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, he went on and on. He, he, uh, as one person has said, Elihu is the mouthpiece for Calvin's theology. But you know the truth is, there is a sense in which what the friends say and what Calvin says, it's hard to argue with on a long enough timeline. Listen to this paragraph from Calvin. We should always fear God's justice and not come to imagine that he uses any tyranny or cruelty. Therefore, let us keep from thinking of such a power in God as he might display without reason. It's true that it is unknown to us, and we must be contented with his only and simple will, as with the only rule of uprightness, and whatever comes to pass, let us not wickedly imagine that God goes crookedly or obliquely, or that he judges otherwise than with reason. On the contrary, let us be fully persuaded that although his judgments seem strange to us, Yet they are ordered according to the best rule that can be, namely, according to his will, which surpasses all justice. This is what Elihu declares in this passage, the same ought to serve chiefly for us. Then if any man is afflicted in his own person, he ought to consider that God is just, in order that he may repent of his faults. For we shall never have true repentance unless we know that God afflicts us uprightly. Neither can we glorify God and confess that he's just unless we've first condemned ourselves. There's an element to that paragraph that is hard to argue with. God's just. God is righteous. And in a long enough timeline, we have to believe that what we experience, God does for a purpose. And I agree with that on a long enough timeline. I have no other choice. Either God is not powerful, in which case he's not God, or God's not good, 
which I find to be just unthinkable. Or we're stuck in the middle where we just don't completely understand what God is doing. Which is why, ultimately, the Christian message revolves around one central event and idea, the resurrection. It's the hope of the resurrection that defines Christianity. The hope of the resurrection is the hope that says, I don't fully understand what's happening now, and so all I can do is hang on. If Jesus was raised from the dead, there's hope that I will be too, and one day I'll understand. This is Paul's message. Now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. But just because the friend's theology might be right, <laughs> doesn't mean that they were good comforters or said the right thing in the right moment. A person whose suffering doesn't need, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. A person who is suffering needs those words that say, weep with those who are weeping. And the friends didn't do that. Well, we have set ourselves up Next week, God shows up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the book of Job. Help us, Lord, to have a long enough view to hold on to you, even in tough times. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.